I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. As we begin a new week, 31 states now have increasing numbers of coronavirus cases. Some have pulled back reopenings. Some have faced strains on hospital and testing capacity. And because of the surge of new cases around the country, Governor Andrew Cuomo is considering whether to slow down the process of reopening New York. New York is a hub. If other states have a high infection rate, probability is they're going to wind up uh, increasing the spread and the infection in New York. Cuomo said he would decide Wednesday whether indoor dining could begin next week in New York City as scheduled. New York City is currently in phase two. Phase three would begin on Monday. Uh, But there are issues that we have to think through. One is There's a lack of compliance with social distancing in New York City. You can tell where the cases are increasing in part by where and how people are spending money. Jesse Edgerton is a senior economist at J.P. Morgan. And Jesse, you've been discerning COVID-19 patterns from credit card spending. Well, I would say we can measure those two things independently and then see how they correlate. So we're now able to track spending across states and in different categories in a panel of 30 million credit and debit cards from Chase. And so we can see, for example, in which states was spending the highest a few weeks ago, and in particular is which in which states were uh, spending on restaurants the highest a few weeks ago. And then, of course, we can see from the, the COVID data published by Johns Hopkins and others, you know, which states uh, have seen the biggest increase in cases since then. And what are you finding? Well, we do find there is a correlation there. Um, so some of the states that you're probably familiar with, like Arizona, Texas, Florida, South Carolina, Oklahoma, uh, that have seen big outbreaks of the virus in the last few weeks. Those are also places where we saw higher levels of spending in general, activity in general, and then particular in, in restaurant spending a few weeks ago. Which helps explain why some states where that spending was higher now backtracking on restaurants and bars if that's where the gatherings were. Uh, yes, yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to... Uh, assert that we're finding a, a causal relationship here when what we're really seeing is a correlation, right? So we can tell that there's this this correlation between restaurant spending and an outbreak of the virus. Um, but we don't know for sure that the same states where people were spending more in restaurants weren't also places where they were doing other things that might have spread the virus, like house parties, for example. Sure. So you could certainly imagine that Uh, States where people are more eager to go out to restaurants are also states where people are more eager to have parties. And, you know, it's it's possible that it's really the parties that are spreading the virus rather than than the restaurants. But, uh, you know, at the least, I think these these relationships that we're seeing are important to understand better. I noticed you were also tracking supermarket spending. What does that show you? Well, we were interpreting that as, as something of the opposite of restaurant spending. So you see the places where people are spending the most in supermarkets. Uh, actually had slower spread of the virus. And, you know, that's really kind of the flip side of the states where people are spending more in restaurants, right? So, you know, basically in Arizona, Florida, Texas, people were spending more in restaurants and less in supermarkets. But in New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, people were spending uh, more in supermarkets, less in restaurants. So I think that's kind of the, the flip side where, you know, those those states where you see people going out, going to restaurants more, uh, staying in and cooking less, you know, those the, the states where people are going out more is, is where the virus is spreading most. 
We know that a number of the new cases in some of those hotspot states have skewed younger. Are you able to track the credit card data by age and, and by those who hold the cards? Uh, yes, yeah. And, and we do see patterns that um, line up with those, those data from the virus, where the biggest increases in spending have been among younger generations, millennials and, and Generation Z. And so I think that that does fit into the story that I think is emerging here, where this uh, recent resurgence of the virus, I, I suspect it is driven by younger people going back out into the economy, going to restaurants and bars. The virus is spreading among this younger group to a greater extent than before. Uh, it's also spreading in places where, where it's been hot, right? So Texas, Florida, Arizona, uh, perhaps if you're going to a restaurant in those states, you kind of have to sit inside with the, the air conditioning on. Uh, and, you know, that aspect of it might be key to what's happening here. But, you know, so as the, the seasons change and uh, behavior changes, we might see these relationships shifting over time. Jesse Edgerton at J.P. Morgan Chase. Jacksonville, Florida, which is hosting the Republican National Convention in August, is now requiring masks indoors in public places and where social distancing is not possible. Over the weekend, Vice President Mike Pence became more vocal about wearing masks. We encourage uh, everyone to wear a mask uh, in the affected areas. And where you can't maintain social distancing, uh, wearing a mask is just a good idea. President Trump has not worn a mask as a way of modeling behavior for the public and has suggested those who do have been trying to somehow undermine him. Lindsay Wiley is a professor of law and director of the Health, Law and Policy Program at American University. Has there ever been something in this realm that has become so controversial and yet seemingly so simple as wearing a mask during a pandemic? Well, actually, public health regulations of individual behaviors are often hotly contested and highly controversial. One of the other areas I've worked on is soda portion rules, you know, the the big gulp ban in New York City. People react very strongly to government intervention that targets behavior choices. Uh, particularly when they view those behavior choices as only being about protecting themselves. If they view that as paternalistic, there's really strong opposition. But in this case, mask mandates aren't actually paternalistic, are they? Masks primarily protect other people. They may offer some protection to the wearer, but the main reason to mandate them is because we don't know who might be infected uh, and, and spreading the infection to others. And so we're recommending that everyone behave as if they could be carrying infection and wear masks to protect those around them. Is the problem then with the messaging? And this isn't like wearing a seatbelt that's meant to protect you? I think that's a piece of it. I think the messaging has been inconsistent and confusing. And there's just an intuitive sense in which it feels like wearing a mask is to protect yourself. Um, we call it personal protective equipment uh, for that reason. And we think a lot about health workers wearing masks to protect themselves. But even health workers are wearing masks in part to protect their patients. I think the other big issue here is that um, not unlike uh, seatbelts, masks are viewed uh, by some as not being manly, uh, as exhibiting a sort of fear you know, it, it brings to mind the controversy over President Obama being pictured wearing a bicycle helmet. And I think the same week that Putin was pictured, you know, bare chested on a stallion or somewhere. <laughs> um, and finally, there are also similarities to condom use. Um, there's a lot of ways in which these health related behaviors, use doing something to protect yourself and others, 
um, might be seen as conveying, I think I might be diseased or I think you might be diseased. So there was a lot of work in the 80s in particular and 90s around retooling the meaning, the social meaning of bringing out a condom to mean everybody does this. It's what we do to protect each other. It doesn't mean that I think anything about myself or anything about you. Um, same with mask use. I think when people see others wearing masks, it's a, an unpleasant reminder um, of the risks that, the, that the virus poses. But can cities and states mandate mask wearing? Does that pass legal muster? It, it almost certainly does. Um, there are some legal issues that could be tricky in particular instances, though. So there are some situations where it might be the wrong part of government that's trying to mandate the mask. Uh, for example, in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, the city council held a vote and uh, did not pass a mask, man- mask mandate. And then immediately afterwards, the mayor issued it as an executive order. That seems to me like a recipe for getting your mask mandate challenged and potentially struck down. But if the right part of government uh, adopts the rule and they follow the right process for doing that, uh, I expect the mask mandates to survive constitutional challenges based on individual rights because the courts will be very deferential uh, to state and local governments in terms of acting on the best available scientific evidence. Would it be better if the federal government mandated it for all Americans? I think that would be absolutely challenged in court. The federal government has really limited authority over uh, public health and disease control in this country. It's really the states that hold the reins, and then they can delegate that authority to local governments. If, for example, the CDC tried to issue a nationwide mask order, it would be challenged in court. And I think it would most likely be struck down because Congress hasn't given the, the CDC or the president that authority in clear enough terms. Lindsay Wiley from American University. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to TJ Holmes. Thanks, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. We've seen numbers all over the place, hot spots, cases going up, followed by hospitalizations. Yep. So what exactly are you now and should we all be focused on, if you will? Well, TJ, in talking to epidemiologists and public health officials, there's a term that I want to drill down on. And I really think it's important that people pay attention to this. It's called the test positivity percentage. So let's start with some basic definitions. This is the percent of people who are tested who then test positive. This is really important because it's considered to be a marker for testing, how much we're testing and how well we're testing, as well as the level of the virus. And the World Health Organization did advise in May that before reopening, they urged governments to use the test positivity and keep it at less than or equal to 5% for at least two weeks to go ahead and reopen. Now, as of June 28th, 23 states in the United States now have rates that are higher than 5%. That is not where we want to be. What factors into this rate? And you said 23 states, but all over the place are... They testing exactly the same to get that number? Well, no surprise, TJ, that the testing is kind of all over the place. So here are the issues at this point. Number one, the way that each each state is testing is inconsistent. So the way they're reporting what they're reporting is inconsistent. That makes it problematic. In general, with this test positivity percentage, if the rate is too high, 
that may mean that then only the sickest patients or people are being tested or that the virus is circulating at a very high level. If the rate is too low, that may mean that the testing is okay and the viral activity is low, which is where we are in New York right now. But again, you have to take it with not a grain of salt, a chunk of salt. Right, so, but we all, and you remind me every single day up here, we, this is so early, there's still yeah. so much we have to learn. And we're still learning about how to track. We're learning how to test, how to track it. And we have to remember that we're still learning every day. It's, it feels like it's been forever, but it's really only been six months. So we don't yet know the fatality rate of this virus and the test positivity rate is important to help figure that out. We don't know, other than the fact that it's very contagious, exactly a number. We don't know how contagious this virus is. And most importantly, TJ, state by state, even country by country, we don't know who is getting tested. Is testing being done as a means of surveillance or are you only testing the people who are sick enough to come to medical attention? So a lot still needs to be worked out with us. Are <laughs> you making that face like, say I'll get back <laughs> yeah. to you. All right, exactly. Doc. Thank you so much. You we'll bet. see you again. Here's Shirley. Let's turn now to California, where the governor there has ordered all bars closed in seven counties, citing concerns over the rapid uptick in coronavirus cases in the Golden State. We're joined now by Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. Mr. Mayor, thank you for being here. Your county, um, where your city is, San Joaquin County, is one of those counties that the governor did target that bars need to be closed. You all hadn't reopened there in the first place, but the bars were already closed. But still, do you think this is the right move by the governor and bars shouldn't be open in your area just yet? I think it's absolutely the right move. Um, and as we heard from the last segment, that there's so much we don't know about the virus, but what we do know so that's highly contagious, that there's not a vaccine yet, and that for people who are over 65, people with core morbidities like diabetes and asthma, um, people of color due to their essential jobs, um, are more likely to contract and die from this illness. So I think as leaders, it's time to make sure our citizens take our proper precautions and we should open up in a way that's smart and informed by science. All right, and Mr. Mayor, right. you um, have been trying for weeks to get mandatory mask use in your city. Uh, the governor has gone forward. He has made it a requirement statewide, mandatory to wear masks. But when you tried several weeks ago there in Stockton, you couldn't get a single vote of support on the city council. You were the lone vote to do so. Why are your citizens, have they been at least, so resistant to being required to wear those masks? Yeah, well, I think it starts at the top. You have the administration that repeatedly from onset of this virus has lied about the science, has lied about the seriousness. They said we'll be out of this by June and July. And I think a lot of folks on my council took the president and his cabinet at their word. Um, and great. Luckily for us, a lot of citizens um, did their own research, did their own um, findings and realized that wearing masks wasn't an imposition on liberty, but it's really about being a true patriot and, and being a good neighbor. Um, so although the council at first rejected the, the, the legislation, we had an outpouring of support and letters and phone calls from a variety of community members who were saying, no, this is the right thing to do. And now with the governor's mandate, we're able to ensure that everyone's wearing masks, we're making sure that we're giving masks to people. And then we're also able to concentrate on some of the issues that COVID-19 has brought up with our economy. Uh, you talk about the economy, something you have tried there in your, time, your, your town. It's something that uh, Andrew Yang, who was a presidential candidate, got some attention for this idea of universal basic income. A, a trial is going on in your town now where citizens, a small sample, are getting regular checks every single month from the government, free cash to them. How is that program going? And also during a pandemic, 
are you starting to see or, or I guess proving the point of how useful a program like this can be? Yeah, absolutely. For the past 18 months, we've been giving $500 a month in philanthropic um, funding to 125 families. And what we found, TJ, is that folks spend money just like you and I would spend money um, on food, on supplies, on helping family members, on creating more opportunity for themselves, on their children, etc. What's been interesting is that during COVID-19, it's really illustrated um, that, number one, we live in the time of pandemics, meaning that this year is COVID-19, next year will be an earthquake, the year after will be a fire or a hurricane, and we have to give people the tools to build economic resilience, which starts with the Income Foundation. We found for the 125 people um, in, our, in our pilot that $500 a month during COVID-19 was enough for them to cope with unemployment because it's taking months and months for folks to get access to the unemployment rules. It's allowed them to pay... Um, rent for their small business or be able to save up, put aside rent um, for their for their apartments and for their homes. It's allowed them uh, to, to buy more food. We've seen spending on food go up from about 36% in the months pre-COVID to 46% in time after COVID. And it's because of that you've seen legislation from um, the Congress around a one-time payment of $1,200 to all Americans. Um, I argue that should be monthly and reoccurring, like Senator Harris and Senator Sanders and a couple of U.S. representatives. And then today I'm joining with 11 other mayors to launch this Mayors for Guaranteed Income Network, which is all of us saying that, hey, um, 50 years ago, Dr. King talked about this during the time of civil unrest. Um, This is something that has to be done, particularly in COVID-19, but also as a tool to bring about the equality and the change from the status quo that people are taking to the streets right now protesting about. Well, Mr. Mayor, at some point, uh, folks would have thought that was a radical idea, but you all have put it in place. Uh, It seems to be working there um, by many accounts, and we'll see what happens down the road with it. But uh, Mayor Tubbs from Stockton, young fellow, good to see you, man. Thank you, sir. Uh, When coronavirus hit the country, forcing gyms to close, it sent fitness enthusiasts into a frenzy. What are we going to do? They started buying up all kinds of home exercise equipment. All that has led to a major shortage in all kinds of things. Joining us now to share the latest on the at-home fitness craze is Gym Source President and Chief Operating Officer Deborah McKeever. Gym Source, of course, America's oldest and largest distributor of home fitness equipment. Ma'am, thank you so much for being here. People started buying up home equipment. What kinds of things that people just rush out and start buying? Well, Immediately, we saw uh, consumers looking for fitness alternatives, and primarily we saw an increase in strength equipment, dumbbells, bars, plates, benches. Um, And and in fact, in the month of March 2020, we sold more of those items than we did in the entire year of 2019. Wow. Do you think that uh, consumers' habits will be forever changed by this, meaning Is this going to be a long-term change, you believe, in how we work out in this country? I do. Um, You know, I think that it's going to be a complement of, eventually a complement of at-home and gym memberships. But right now, you know, your at-home workout gives you a, a lot of comfort, right, from a health and safety perspective. We do see people returning to the gyms, but not at the frequency that they were. So if you went five days a week, you may be, you know, putting your toe in the water, so to speak, and going one day a week and maybe increasing it to two and, you know, learning to navigate uh, their environment. But there is a strong demand. Uh, We believe there will be a strong continual demand for at home. Everything is changing, including how we work out. Everything is changing. All right, Ms. McKeever, thank you so much for being with us. Hope to see you again down the road. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, up next right here. When we come back, we'll meet the young changemaker at the center of a big protest, what she calls the punch to the gut that spurred her activism. Back now with the young changemaker moved by an act of injustice as a teenager. Now a big part of today's uprisings, leading others. My name is Bria Baker. I'm 25 years old and I'm a racial and gender justice activist based in Atlanta. I became involved in activism from a pretty young age, I would say. I was 18, um, graduating from high school when Trayvon Martin was killed and he was 17 at the time. I felt very clearly how my life was connected to his. And it felt like black youth in America collectively took like a punch to the gut. To know that someone who was doing absolutely nothing wrong um, could be executed in public, that there wouldn't even be an arrest until we protested and even still that wouldn't seek justice for us. And from that moment on, it just felt like there was nothing else I could be spending my time on and that I needed to be contributing to this moment every day. So I currently work at Inspire Justice, which is a social impact firm helping us to reimagine a new society where we have the community that we really want. When I first heard about George Floyd, I experienced both numbness and also anticipation of being disappointed, to be honest. It made me feel defeated that I had been working for eight years up until this point and that we're still facing the same issues. And then when the uprising and the outcry um, came out of Minneapolis and then Louisville and then California and then New York, I started to think, okay, there might be something different here. I'm a part of an incredible activist collective in New York called Justice League NYC. And we um, just organized a protest that mobilized about 35,000 people onto the streets. We met at 110th Street in Uptown and marched all the way down to Washington Square Park, which was an incredible show. And now Mayor de Blasio is announcing major shifts um, to the infrastructure of the NYPD. One was the lifting of the curfew, but then he also announced a series of reforms, including of 50A, which is a law in New York that allows police records to be um, confidential. He also announced that they would be redirecting money from NYPD to youth and social services. It is impossible to have change overnight. It's actually underestimating racism to think that you can undo 400 years of oppression overnight. I'm hoping that even when protests have subsided, um, that we retain our energy, that we stay focused on the fight, and that people understand how they can build change in their local communities, as opposed to looking what can I do for the rest of the world? I am confident that the cry of I can't breathe has now become as synonymous with Black Lives Matter because only with our insistence and with our vigilance will we get justice. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Ashton, we have a question. Let's get right to it. Antibody test. How accurate and is it possible to get a false negative? Well, with any test, TJ, of course, um, it's rare to have 100 percent accuracy. That's why we have things called sensitivity and specificity. The antibody test, no different. Yes, there can be false negatives. There can also be false positives. So right now, because we're still collecting data, we're very early in this, and a lot of them, their accuracy has not been determined. They should not change your behavior. So a lot of people curious. But that's about it. All right. What do we know about COVID-19 and increased risk to people with asthma? 
So this is interesting because you would think common sense that any chronic underlying respiratory condition would put you at increased risk. But there is no data right now that people with asthma are at higher risk of infection, even though the CDC has mentioned people with asthma as a potentially high risk category. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology says there is no published data to support this. Bottom line, if you have asthma, you should keep it as well controlled as possible and do not discontinue any of your asthma medication. All right. A mask. Can wearing a mask lower a person's blood oxygen content? TJ, if this were true, any surgeon, any person working in an operating room or that wears a mask for their job would be passing out. So, no, this is not true. The oxygen molecule, carbon dioxide molecule, so small, they go right through masks. And remember, they're not airtight. So they go out the side, they go out the bottom. It's not a hermetically sealed device. And does a face shield offer the same protection as a mask? Probably not. We still don't have good data on this. But remember, a face shield is covering the front. It's leaving the bottom still open. So it's not uh, a substitute by any means. We may learn more about the importance of eye protection in the future. But right now, it's nose and mouth mask up. All right, Doc, thank you so much. You can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, of course, the world is reopening and we're venturing out to tackle our new normal. We want to get back to normal, but there's a new normal. So are we going to forget some of these lessons we've learned while we've been locked down? Well, to give us a daily inspiration, let's turn to entrepreneur and investor Kim Burrell. Ma'am, thank you so much for being here. So we, we talked about some perspective and having a new outlook on life. But now we're opening up, getting back to what we think is normal. So what are you going to make sure you take with you out of this quarantine? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been an interesting and whirlwind couple of months. And when you look at getting back to the new normal, you know, I really think it's about getting not getting back to the new normal, but but a better place for all of us. So one of the lessons that I'm going to take with me, my mom came and she spent the last three months living with us and my four children who are five and under, which is a zoo. And every morning, I think to get her sanity, she'd go outside and come back with pictures of the trees or a rainbow or bark. And I was like, is bark interesting, mom? But she'd find the beauty in the little things. And I think it was a great reminder to just step back and remember the beauty in life, even even when, you know, it's really hard out there. there there's beauty in bark. That's a new one for me, Kim, but I'm going to hold there's on to that beauty one. beauty in bark. <laughs> All right. Now, also, also it, it's always important to be kind. And maybe we've been reminded of it. It's the golden rule, if you will. But how is that a little different for you now? Yeah, I think COVID has really rocked our world and it's something everyone on a global level is going through and you never know what someone's going through. So it's really, you know, I've been really impressed by the individuals, my family, friends, strangers, random acts of kindness, but I think it's really important to be kind to yourself. And that's one thing, just looking at what gives you joy. Because when you get, when I get overwhelmed or I'm anxious, it's, it's just about coming back to how to make sure I'm being kind to me. And whether that's putting on a, my favorite song or eating my favorite food or calling one of my good friends to make me laugh, that has really, you know, really helped me. All right. Last thing here quickly. One thing you would tell folks to embrace uh, as a part of the new normal. Yes, uh, I think, you know, the new normal 
I, you know, let's make the new normal better than it ever was before. And in the end, the most important things aren't things. They're really the relationships and the relationships are really what matter the most. So just making sure to spend that quality time with your friends and your family and your loved ones, because, you know, that's something that can truly be cherished and never taken back. Thank you so much. There is beauty in bark. I'm going to get that bark. tattooed on my forearm. Uh, Kimber Burrell, thank you so much. Good to see you. Don't you know I'm still now, our in-depth conversation with NASCAR elite driver Bubba Wallace, a man no stranger to the headlines these days. Joining me now, World News. Now, Anger Kenneth, Moton Kenneth, hello to you. You got to sit down with this guy. Everybody's talking about him these days. Everybody's talking about yeah. Bubba. You know a Bubba? I know Bubba. I know a Bubba or two yeah. down south, definitely. <laughs> but this one appears to be like no other Bubba. He's young, he's outspoken, and he's black. To catch you up, Bubba Wallace put Black Lives Matter on his Chevy Camaro, number 43, made famous by NASCAR legend Richard Petty. He pushed NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag, and then there was the noose found in a garage stall assigned to him. The FBI said it wasn't a hate crime, sparking a fierce backlash. Wallace's critics calling it all a hoax, and that is where we started when I sat down with Wallace. So how was your week? I think you could sum that up for me pretty well, so I'll let you take a crack at that. There was a noose found. It was a noose, but you'll never, you'll never be able to sell that to 100% of the people that are tuning in. So um, it's funny how common sense doesn't register with some people, but it's all good. NASCAR, a multi-billion dollar business. The drivers on the track and the fans in the stands, mostly white. The sport, mostly known for good old boy stereotypes. The young man trying to change that, Bubba Wallace. Sat down with us over the weekend ahead of NASCAR's doubleheader at the Pocono Raceway in the mountains of Pennsylvania. I just want to race. But the only full time black driver in NASCAR felt the need to speak up. As demonstrators hit the streets across this country demanding racial justice and equality, the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd having a profound impact. It's terrible to see, terrible witness. And to, you know, be a, be a part of indirectly. And I felt like something inside me changed to where I need to be vocal and speak up. It starts with us. It starts with everybody. I'm trying to have a clear mind of being able to educate themselves and, and listen and learn. That's what our message was from all of us drivers a couple weeks ago. Listen, learn, educate yourself, and understand what other people are going through. Help, help our brothers and sisters. Daryl Bubba Wallace, born in Alabama, raised in North Carolina. How'd you get Bubba? Uh, the day I was born from my sister. Uh, we don't know why, but it just kind of stuck. So did the love for the sport at just nine years old when he started racing go-karts. He got his first professional win as a teen, quickly becoming a fierce competitor. Super aggressive. I race you how you race me. Uh, I get fired up. I get pissed off. I, I, I go through all the emotions. Um, I, uh, I just I love to race and compete. Nearly three years ago, Wallace joined Team Petty. They, uh, they took a chance on me and believed in me. Why are there not more men in cars who look like you? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we'll just keep doing everything we can off the racetrack and on the racetrack to expose and, and bring awareness to NASCAR and who I am and what I'm doing. Wallace took a stand against the Confederate flag, but he made this surprising admission. Does it necessarily bother me personally? No, because you're right, I grew up with it this whole time, been around it, and it's just something I never even paid attention to. But knowing that I have a voice and I can make an impact for people that feel like they don't have a voice, I'll stand up 100% of the time. You speak out against it. 
but then in Talladega, we see on the outside, outside of NASCAR property. They're flying it, they're flying it in the air. Your thoughts when you saw those images? Ignorance, you know. Wallace's goal, a more diverse set of fans in the stands enjoying NASCAR. It appears to be already working, but as that fan base grows, so do the number of critics. Some advice from his mother. Yeah, they were just trying to intimidate you and distract you from what I really need to focus on, which is ultimately racing stuff. But, um, you know, now I'm becoming more of an adult, knowing how to manage both being a human being, being an athlete. Um, she's told me to always try to stay focused on the, the big picture. What do you want your... What do you want your legacy at NASCAR? I know you're 26 years old, but when you say five, 10, 20 years down the road, what do you want your fan base to look like? What do you want NASCAR fan base to look like? I'm proud to be where I'm at today. There's a lot of room left to go, a lot of progress left to be made. Um, and it's just getting started for me. So um, you don't even have to be a fan of me. You can be a fan of your favorite driver in the sport, but I'd like to see it more you know, diverse, inclusive and just everybody getting along and nobody feeling uncomfortable. Wallace is thankful for the support he's getting from fans and he says that unity we saw last week with the drivers lining up behind him at Talladega, that is his NASCAR family. TJ, he says he always feels welcome when it comes to NASCAR. You know, good for him and he's been speaking and he, he hasn't shied away from this. He hasn't. He definitely feels a sense of responsibility, mm. but this young man, he just wants to race. Mm. He told me that. Several times. All just right. wants to race. Like, get out of my face about this, Kenneth. Just, I just want to race. race my car. Tired of the interviews. All right. <laughs> want to race. All right. Good to see you here, you man. You too, brother. Thanks so much. Oh, people seem to have so much to worry about these days. Self-care might not be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. We have fears of a second wave as new COVID-19 cases are starting to surge. But our next guest isn't letting those fears get in the way of helping others. She's bringing smiles. Yes, smiles. How? She's providing free dental hygiene kits to her community. Please, everybody, welcome dental hygienist and founder of Jess's Kind Little Smiles, Jessica Morgan. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really honored for the recognition that Jess's Kind Little Smiles has been getting um, over the past couple weeks. Now, this initiative, how did you start it up in the first place? Before the pandemic started, I was a dental hygienist at Cobblestone Kids Pediatric Dentistry, and... When we were all out of work, we became furloughed, and a lot of dental professionals had to figure out a way to spend their time. So I started um, helping out by giving meals to my neighbors and seeing how thankful they were for those meals. I realized quickly that if they are struggling for food on their tables, that they probably weren't even thinking about their child's teeth. So immediately, I the next day, I called my dental rep, and he was able to su- supply bags that contain a toothbrush, floss, and toothpaste for 89 cents each. And that was when I knew that this was a need that I could meet in my community. Uh, a need, you say, and you started to raise money. Now, how, how did that go? You, you ended up raising more than you thought? Yes. So I immediately reached out to my network of people. I have my friends, my family, my dental team. My initial goal was to reach $500 that would get the kits out to over 550 children across Philadelphia. Within a week, I raised over, well enough over $1,500 that we not only reached our goal by delivering these dental kits and spreading education, that we also turned this initiative into a nonprofit that we can do again. 
on, on that point, so much is going on right now, and it doesn't seem like this is the focus. You kind of mentioned like self-care isn't something necessarily that we're keeping an eye on. Um, just for you personally, um, you're, you're feeding a need now that a lot of people aren't thinking about. How rewarding has the work been? Spreading smiles and just giving a kid a goodie bag has really just overwhelmed my heart. Um, it's something I do at work every day and take it for granted. Um, during COVID, when I was home, I pictured kids just being stuck at home. I pictured parents being and caretakers being burned out from the kids being home all the time and just thinking that they, I could give them something new, a little bag with the, some stickers and supplies that are um, also helpful for their overall health. Um, just be able to give them something new. Jessica, thank you so much. It is an absolute pleasure. Again, folks, it's Jess's kind little smiles, and this is Jessica Morgan. But thank you so much for what you're doing. We're focused on so many things with the vaccines and absolutely people are losing jobs and all kinds of things are going on. And you um, reminding us that, yes, there's something else you, you want to take off their plate. They don't have to worry about. So thank you for what you're doing, Jess. Good to see you. Oh, thank you so much. And that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.